would you turn to Isaiah 26, and we'll jump in. Isaiah 26. When I tell someone I'm from California, one of the initial questions that they ask kind of as a rebuttal is, do you surf? Um, Initially, I kind of play the game, you know, know, and then I just have to be honest with them and tell them, no, I don't. Um, I'm somewhat intimidated by the ocean, not just because of the waves, but because of the sharks. I mean, you're literally swimming in their kitchen, and I have always struggled with that. But I do have a respect for the waves. Last week, we were in Mexico. We've been going there on our family vacation, and there are times where the waves are nothing more than the speed bumps in a private gated community. They're fairly minimal, but there are other times where the waves are like great towers that fall and crush you, and they have the ability to pummel your body and to dizzy and discombobulate your mind. If you've ever been in the midst of an oceanic swell, once I think I've maybe I've told you before that after college, uh, 10 years ago, I did my work holiday visa in Australia, and everyone goes to Anava swim. But there are times where those great waves and those swells can pulverize you as you hold your breath and you fight for the surface. And at times, life itself can seem like we have been caught up in a violent riptide, shackled to a relentless current of suffering and sin and temptation that we are unable to escape. Our minds are often submerged with anxious thoughts. We are distraught with despair. And the sin we face often robs us of joy. And the worries in our life rob us of peace. Our life, if we're being honest, are often a chronicle of trouble and pain. In the last few weeks, I have talked with different people who have dashed hopes struggling with infertility, a miscarried child, a lost loved one, the sting of injustice, an unfair boss, and chronic loneliness. And sometimes this pain that we feel feels like a flash flood that suddenly sweeps over our life. And at other times, the pain that we feel is like a slow leak, a drip that compounds and exacerbates over time It's not just the catastrophic headlines of our life that prompt our anxiety or that steal our peace, but also the details that fade into the background, like a broken water heater or a looming job interview or the question, will I be single forever? Fuel and food prices. I started getting the Wall Street Journal because I told Katie I wanted to read the news more, so I started getting... The paper, I don't actually read it, but I I look at the headlines. (laughs) And the headlines are food and fuel prices are soaring. An enemy nation is test firing rockets into the ocean. And then I looked at an article, it says, I have a mole on the back of my neck, comma, is it cancerous? I recently Google searched the cure for anxiety and in 0.14 seconds, 527 million results pop up. I then proceeded to search, how can I find peace? And within half of a second, in the blink of an eye, 1.623 billion results pop up. Because the world in which you live is searching for peace amidst a life that is often full of storms. And far from the heretical cry of prosperity preachers today, God's children are not immune to suffering. They're not immune to difficulty or to pain 
but often their pain is more consistent, more unexplainable, and more severe than that of the world. Your life, if you're a Christian, is not impregnable to the flesh or to Satan's arrows, but often our lives feel like we've been stranded on a reef in the middle of the ocean only to endure the relentless onslaught of wave after wave after wave. And the question that the Christian asks, and the question that the world wants to know is, what is the initial basis of our hope in a life like this? What can possibly buoy my soul and your soul amidst the turbulent seas of life? Look with me at Isaiah 26, 3 and 4. Today will be a meditation, if you will, on these two verses. Isaiah 26, 3 and 4. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For in God, the Lord, we have an everlasting rock. Would you pray with me once more? God, we thank you, Lord, for the word of God. And we know and testify that the world that we live in is full of storms. There's full, it's full of uncertainty and chaos and confusion, cancer, death, disease, and divorce. And Lord, we just live in a messy world. And there's a reason why it says that the Christian has a peace that surpasses all understanding because truly it doesn't make sense to the watching world. But Lord, you're going to detail in your word how we achieve the peace that comes from God. And so, Lord, I pray that you, through your Holy Spirit, would preach a stronger sermon this morning than any man ever could, and that we, Lord, would have our eyes open to understand all that is within your holy word. We pray this in your name. Amen. Now, we're going to look at the peace of God this morning, and the only people that really can experience the peace of God are those who have been made at peace with God, meaning only reconciled sinners can experience a peace that surpasses all understanding. And this is a spiritual peace initially, a spiritual peace where you have recognized that positionally when God looks at you, he no longer sees you as an enemy, he no longer sees you as a child of wrath, but he sees you as an adopted child. For the Christian, there is a spiritual peace where there is no longer any fear of God as judge. There is no longer a dreadful fear of death, but there is only the loving assurance that God is your father. If you are a Christian, there is a peace in your life, and that is a spiritual peace. With that being said, as we've already mentioned and discussed, we are at times often not immune to our sinful world and our sinful flesh. And our lives are constantly badgered and bombarded by tragedy and trials and even by temptation and the sin in our life that tries to rob us of peace. But the scripture is going to offer us a unique tranquility of heart, a quietness of heart. As an example, when I was in high school and college and even for the first number of years um, we were married, our family goes houseboating every single summer at Lake Powell in Arizona and Utah. We love the wakeboard, and in the afternoon, the waves get choppy because of all the jet skis and the tubers, whatnot. So every morning, the big kids, we would wake up, set the alarm, and we would go for an early morning wakeboard run. 
And we would get back from that early morning wakeboard run and my grandma would be there sipping her coffee and she would say, how was it? And we would always say the water was perfect. It was like what? Glass. Because there's this total stillness of the water. It was as if a blue sheet had been stretched out across the surface of the lake. And that stillness is the peace that the Bible describes that only the Christian has. It's a stillness when the waves of life are crashing around you, you're calm and peaceful. Really, we're going to look at this fairly simply today. Four questions regarding the peace of God, the what, the who, the how, and the why. The first question is, what is the quality of the peace that God gives? It says, the steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace. The peace that God gives is not partial, it's not imperfect, it's perfect. In Hebrew, it's a repeated word. It says, the steadfast of mind you will keep in shalom, shalom. Shalom is the Hebrew word you may be familiar with that means a total wholeness, a completeness. And the word is repeated to enforce and intensify what it means here. It's not just a peace where there is no longer the sound of bullets and rockets. It's as if that even idea is so far removed from your memory where all you know is stillness. We live in a world, you have to understand this, crippled by anxiety and fear. I was reading an article the other day on the very reputable site, WebMD, and it says that the USA is more appropriately called the United States of Anxiety. Why? Because 253 million prescriptions are filled out every single year for anxious people in a country of 311 million people. It's one of the largest businesses in America is to give people a peace because of the life that they live. But the peace that God grants is a perfect peace. It is a peace of conscience, a peace that provides you with a stillness even in the midst of life's storms. So the what is a perfect peace. And then watch who gives this peace, number two. Who gives this peace? Look back. It says, you will keep, 26.3, you will keep in perfect peace. God is the only one who gives peace. And half a second, 1.62 billion results were given for that Googled question. And what everyone is searching for is something that only God can give. Happiness comes from happenstance, things that happen. But only God can give peace. In the same way that there is a fool's gold, there is a fool's peace. And that peace is dictated and rested upon what happens, the circumstances, events, situations, relationships, in your life. But if you want genuine, authentic, durable, impenetrable peace, then you have to go to God. Furthermore, what God gives, he maintains. It says you will what? Keep. God's peace is not God's gift to you and then your responsibility to maintain. God's peace is something that he gives to you and then he maintains through his power. In verse four, there are three names for God that are intended to show us the solidity and fullness of the peace that is offered to you by God himself. 
Number one, it says, the steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Verse four, trust in Yahweh forever. It says, trust in the Lord. This is God's covenantal name. This means that God is the absolute, all-sufficient, eternal, changeless one. He is not dependent on anyone or anything. Just like when Moses looks at the burning bush and it says the bush was not burning, God himself possesses, he is aseity, which means that he derives his life from no one and no thing. And the reason that God can give peace is because God is not given peace by anyone or anything else. He himself is peace, and that's why he is the God of peace. When it comes to a calmness in our life, we depend on a God who depends on no one. Then it says, trust in the Lord forever, for in God the Lord This is one of the only times in scripture where this name of God is compounded, where it says God, the Lord. Calvin says regarding this, that the twofold name of God is given to magnify his authority. He has power over circumstances, events, and over everything that tries to rob us of peace. And then we have another name for God. Essentially, we have an everlasting, capital R, right? Rock. We find ourselves in a chaotic sea in life and the waves and breakers of adversity and difficulty crash upon us. But in God, we have an everlasting rock where our souls can be at peace. We sing that God is the rock of what? Ages. God is not the rock of back then. He's not the rock of yesterday. He's not the rock of today. He is the rock of ages, and he is a firm foundation for all those who would come to him and want fixed and firm peace. If your peace is built upon the sand, do you have a reason to worry? What's the answer? Yeah. But if your peace is built upon the everlasting rock, there is nothing in your life that can rob you of peace. Now, how can I have this peace? Third question, what can bring this experience into my life? There are so many things that try to steal my joy and rob me of my peace. Well, the scripture tells us, it says the steadfast of mind in verse three, you will keep in perfect peace. Or I like the ESV translation. It says this, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is, anybody have it? Stayed. On you because he trusts in you. Isaiah here speaks to a steadfastness of mind. This is our responsibility to fix our minds on God. And let me explain what I mean by that. My dad used to take me to Edison Middle School in Wheaton, Illinois, when we were growing up. And there was there there was a tennis court, and we would do home run derbies. And my dad would throw me these tennis balls, and we would try to launch them over the fence. My brother and I. And my brother, or my dad, when he's teaching us how to hit the ball, he says, keep your eye not on the what? The bat, but on the, the ball. And as you keep your eye on the ball, then you achieve the intended outcome. For the Christian, we don't keep our minds on peace. We don't fix our attention on the peace that we desire. We fix our minds on God. And when we fix our minds on God, the peace that God gives is granted and then received by his child. The Christian doesn't pursue peace. They experience peace when they keep their eyes 
And the ESV says, stay their minds upon God. If you want this peace, then there are two words that you have to consider. It says the steadfast of mind. Steadfast means well-stayed. It means resolute, grounded, bolted down, anchored, not blown to and fro. And then it says the mind, the steadfast of mind. And in this regard, I want to take a field trip with you in regards to the mind, biblically speaking. The Christian life, whether you're talking about sexual purity, anxiety, worry, the employment of the tongue, the Christian life is fundamentally a battle that begins in the mind. If you don't grasp this, you don't understand the Christian life as the scripture details. If you want to grow in your trust of God, if you want to grow in the peace of God, if you want to grow in your purity before God, and if you want to grow in your love for the people of God, then you must learn to fix your mind upon him. Oswald Chambers says spiritual concentration is the prerequisite to spiritual growth. You do not grow as a Christian without engaging your mind. And far from the shallow anti-intellectualism of the Christian culture today, the Christian life is one where our minds are fixed, stayed, focused, concentrated. Watch this. Not on growing, but on God. You do not grow by thinking about growing. You grow by thinking about God. Today, many churches are thoughtless, user-friendly, and shallow. And this casual view of God is the catalyst to a low view of God that steals our peace. I want you just to consider the mind of an unbeliever for a moment. It says in 2 Corinthians 4.4 that the way that Satan works is to blind the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of Jesus Christ. He wants to blind their minds. It says in Romans 1.28, God has given depraved sinners over to a depraved mind. It says in Colossians 1, you were formerly alienated from God, comma, how do we know this? How do we know they were alienated from God? Answer, because they were hostile in mind. Ephesians 4.17 the futility and darkness of their minds. Naturally speaking, people do not love God because they do not know God in their mind and they have not received the truth that's in God's word, precious in their thoughts. Now, when Christ comes and saves us, it says in Ezekiel 36 that he takes our heart of stone and gives us a heart of what? Flesh. When God does that, that's a positional reality, meaning that if you're a Christian, you don't have to try to progressively renew the heart of flesh that God has given you because that's a positional reality. Now, with that being said, when you're saved, God gives you in 1 Corinthians 2 the mind of Christ. And the way that we're conformed and transformed into the image of Christ until we meet Christ face to face, to face is by the renewing of our what? Our minds. That is a progressive, ongoing reality until you meet God. Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Ephesians 4, be renewed in the spirit of your, what? Mind. Colossians 3, set your minds on things above. As your mind goes so goes the entirety of your Christian life. Your will, that is what you do, is the servant of your affections. And what controls your affections is your mind. Sometimes we talk about it's in my head, but it's not in my heart. Well, fundamentally, nothing is in your heart that's not first in your head. The sum and substance of your Christian life is what you think about in your mind. 
Proverbs 23, 7. For as a man thinks within himself, so he is. You become like what you think about. Filthy thoughts produce a filthy life. Godly thoughts produce a godly life. Low thoughts of God, low degrees of peace. If your mind is more stayed on the waves of this life, you will not experience the peace that God gives to those whose mind is stayed upon him. High and lofty thoughts of God result in high and lofty degrees of a peace that surpasses all understanding. For the Christian, more than anyone else, and far more than any other religion, there is an emphasis on the mind. The scripture tells you this morning, be careful what you let behind the steering wheel of your mind. First Peter 1.13 says, prepare your minds for action. Mark 12, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, what? Mind and strength. Now, how is my mind renewed? Romans 12 says, my thinking, my mind has to be renewed or transformed. Well, the answer, biblically speaking, is our minds are renewed by faith. But I want to ask you this morning, because even at Grace Community, we can lose sight of the forest because of the trees. We miss it. What is faith for the Christian? It's not just believing in God, right? It says we live not by sight, but by faith. But what is faith for the Christian? Well, faith for the Christian is primarily one thing. It's gazing at God. It's not just that we believe in God. When we exercise our faith, we are exercising a constant fixation on God himself. Christians as I've mentioned, don't consider their faith. They consider the object of their faith and just like an eyeball cannot see itself, we fix our eyes on what is in front of us. So if I said, look at your eyeball, no one would know what to do. But if I said, look at what is in front of you, you fix your eyes there. And that's the way the Christianists live. They don't constantly think about their faith. They think about God. And as they fix their eyes on the object of their faith, their faith grows This requires meditation. Unfortunately, this very term, meditation, has been hijacked by the religions of the Far East. I was in Nepal a few years ago, and there I'm talking to transcendental Buddhist monks. And I was talking to them about meditation. What is meditation? It's very simple. It's one main thing. It's an emptying of the mind until you reach what is called transcendental consciousness. It's where you remove all thoughts of this life, all thoughts that would try to bombard for your attention. You reach a place of inner harmony when you strip your mind of actual thinking and truth. It's an emptying, a decluttering of the mind, whereas you, through meditation, vacuum out your brain's thoughts. But for the Christian Meditation is not an emptying of the mind. It's quite the opposite. It's a what? A filling up of the mind with the truth of God's word. The Puritan Thomas Watson said that meditation is to think on scripture personally, practically, seriously, and earnestly, and then think how the truth of God's word should look in our life. So often the truth that would bring us peace are heard, but not 
digested into our hearts because we have not, the Puritans use the term a lot, chewed the cud of the truth that we are hearing. Just as there is no, you know, I, I've gotten surgery on my shoulder like four times. Ever, I'm due for a broken, you know, torn labrum and rotator cuff any day now. And you have to rest. But just like there is no true healing from surgery without rest, there is no true spiritual healing without a commitment to meditation and a staying of our minds upon God. Why? Because you can go to the greatest church in the world. You can hear two expositional sermons, a midweek Bible study, EWG, and Men of the Word. Well, I don't know if you're going to EWG and Men of the Word, but (laughs) actually come see the elders. uh, You can go to all of those things, but it says, the Puritans talk about this as well. Thomas Watson says that our memories are slippery. It goes in one ear and out the other. And even for the most intentional Christian while they're there, if all they have is two great sermons and another Bible study and this, and even a morning devotional, you could spend a half an hour. He says, our minds are slippery and we roll around in the mud 16 hours a day of the world. And so it robs our peace. It pollutes our peace and we no longer think rightly. So we need the hammer of meditation to drive the nail of God's word into our minds all throughout the day. I think this is just so interesting. I've been reading Joshua. And if you study the life of Moses, Moses was the greatest leader in the Old Testament. You know, and I'm thinking about this when we talked about the transfiguration a little bit in our Bible study. Jesus transfigures before his disciples and the two greatest dudes in the Old Testament are by his side, right? Moses, the writer of the law, and then Elijah, the most faithful servant and communicator of the law. Moses was a powerful leader. And as he dies, the succession plan goes to Joshua. And the plan for Joshua is to conquer every neighboring nation so that they can take their place in the promised land, right? And God comes to Joshua and doesn't discuss a single military tactic, battle plan, but tells them to do what? He says, initially, be strong and courageous. And then he says, you shall meditate on the law of God day and night, day and night. Because as you do this first rung of the ladder, everything else that God has commissioned for you to do will, in effect, unfold for you. This book of the law shall not depart from you, but you shall meditate on it day and night. And in doing so, he will be both strong and courageous, but he will be a man who is single in heart. Often in our world today, truths can be devoured, but they are not properly digested. Our hearts, one writer says, are like unstrung musical instruments where we need to have a constant tuning. But if we were to be mindful of our devotional life, oftentimes it's more akin to a man wolfing down a burger on a highway than it is for a man to prepare and enjoy a meal and and, and be satisfied by it. Our lives are so busy, they're hurried, and Satan uses this. The, the darts and arrows of Satan don't always come in the, in the format of temptation. Sometimes it's just gotta go, gotta go, gotta go. But the Christian is someone who takes both deliberate and occasional moments 
to fix their mind on God. Deliberate meaning that there is a time, a set-aside time to fix and stay their minds on who God is, his character, and then occasional moments, meaning you're walking and you see things and you consider like David, when I look at the stars, the moon that you've ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? That was a occasional moment for meditation because David's walking and observing, he's shepherding a sheep, and then he sees something and goes, wow, I I have never thought about it this way. What is man that you're mindful of him if you're the one that puts the stars in the sky and knows them by name. That would be occasional meditation. But the Christian also needs deliberate meditation where they take a piece of scripture, a truth about who God is, and they lock their minds on that and ask God through his spirit in meditation to hammer that truth home. You cannot meditate on all of Ephesians 1, but you can meditate on Ephesians 1, 7. In him, we have the forgiveness of our what? Sins. And we can thank God for that reality. What took place and what had to take place for the forgiveness of our sins to be accomplished. So we consider the truth in God's word and we consider God's character. We also consider that God listens to prayer when we meditate. I love the lyrics. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God. In prayer. So when we fix our minds on God, we're not just considering these doctrines and kind of wrestling over them academically. We're trying and we're praying and thinking about how God's truth applies to our life. So that requires, as Watson said, personal and practical meditation. So then we consider that God's attributes are not just attributes to affirm, but God's attributes are often what? Promises that he makes to his children. What do I mean by that? Well, God's omnipresence is not just a truth to affirm, God is everywhere. That's also a promise God makes to his children. I will never leave you or what? Forsake you. So there, God's omnipresence isn't just boom, boom. It's a promise. I'll never leave you or forsake you. God's sovereignty is not just a truth to affirm. It's also a promise that God makes to you. Everything in your life is held in the hands of a God who loves you and is working everything out in your life for his glory and for your good. There's so many things that we miss because we don't chew the cud of the truth that we may be here. In considering the character of God and meditating upon him, we're also forced to examine that even the suffering in our life, God is weaving into his providential purposes. I was reading Jonathan Edwards and he said this. I, I, I thought this was a good line. I don't always actually catch everything he's saying. Um, But he said this, I considered this regarding the sovereignty of God in my suffering. Every leaf that falls to the ground, God is working altogether for my good. There is not a single thing that will happen today, incidental in your mind or not, that God is not orchestrating for his glory and your good. And so the mind that has stayed on God doesn't see events or circumstances or happenings in their life and go, nah, they look at it and say, God is a providential God who is orchestrating kings and kingdoms, nations in my own life for his purpose and for my good. Now, why? The fourth question, why is the person whose mind stayed on God described as the one who is kept in perfect peace? Why does this person have have perfect peace. Verse four gives us the answer. Because he, or end of verse three, because he trusts in you. 
As long as Peter kept his mind and his eyes fixed on God, he walked upon the waves. But the moment his attention was diverted, he began to sink. And when your mind is fixed on God, you can walk on the waves of life. No temptation will overcome you because God, through his word and through his spirit and through his people, because they, their meditation has an overflow into your conversations. And Harry's talked about that before. And then it says, this person trusts in God. Trusting God does not just refer here to the security a Christian has in the midst of suffering. Trusting God also is a resolved determination in the face of temptation. What I mean by that is we often look at trusting God and we think about difficult times. Trusting God also is very applicable in tempting times because the person that trusts God knows that what God has commanded is not just something that he wants you to do it as a creator and judge. It's something he calls you to do because he's a good father. So resisting temptation and saying, I'm gonna trust God that his way is peace and his way is better and that his loving kindness is better than life and that's far superior than anything that the world or the flesh or the devil can throw my way. A trust in God means that there is a settled conviction upon your heart where you understand that intimacy with God is far superior than intimacy with the world. Trust is a reliance on God as the crippled person leans upon their crutch. That's the Christian who relies and fully puts their weight on God. And trusting God and self-reliance are mutually exclusive. You cannot trust in yourself and trust in God simultaneously. The heart is either relying upon self or it is relying upon God. You either cast your cares on God or you bear them on your back. So how long should we trust the Lord? Verse four. Trust in the Lord, how long? Forever. Not a moment, not a day, not a week, but forever. If you desire firmness of peace in your life, if you want to have, Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about this in Spiritual Depression, his book, having a peace in your life when you live in a turbulent world is one of the fundamental cornerstones of the Christian witness. He calls it the advertisement for the Christian faith is when you can see whatever's happening in your life, uh, house that's falling apart, a job that's falling apart, a family member that's sick, and you have a settled peace upon your heart. This is the advertisement for who God is. Not that we're immune to suffering or even to grief, but you can be, as Paul says, sorrowful yet always what? Rejoicing. The unsaved person cannot be sorrowful and rejoicing. They can be one or the other. But only the Christian can have this unique convergence of despair and joy. And that person is a person who fixes their minds on God. It says in Scripture multiple times, they use this idea in Philippians, it says, be anxious for nothing, but by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will, anybody know that next word? guard. That word there is the same word for a double-walled city. 
And it's akin to what we see in the Old Testament throughout the Psalms and the Proverbs, that the peace that God gives is not a sheet of paper. It's a double-walled castle. And so the scripture asks you a question. Do you want access to a city of peace with well-fortified walls, guarded walls, archers on every corner, And not only is this a solid, sturdy, protective fortress, it is a well-nourished fortress because in this city, there is a river that runs through it that keeps its inhabitants well-nourished. Well, entrance to that city is for one type of individual. It's not for someone who fixed their minds on God. It's for someone who stays their mind on God. When we despair because of our sin, the mind fixed on God can sing. When Satan tempts me to despair or tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. When we are in the midst of trials, the mind fixed on God can sing. Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. You know, we would be foolish to think that everyone at Grace Community experiences the peace of God actively in their life. You could be the richest man in the world, but if you don't have the peace of God, you are poor and to be pitied. But if you fix your mind on God, peace like a river will gush out into the reservoir of your hearts. Let me read these lyrics and then we'll close in prayer. The hymn you may know. Like a river glorious is God's perfect peace, over all victorious in its bright increase, perfect yet still flowing, fuller every day, perfect yet still growing deeper all the way. Trusting in the Father, hearts are fully blessed, finding as he promised, perfect peace and rest. Hidden in the hollow of his mighty hand, where no harm can follow, in his strength we stand. We may trust him fully, all for us to do. Those who trust him wholly, find him wholly true. Trusting in the Father, hearts are fully blessed. Finding as he promised, perfect peace and rest. Let me pray and then we'll be dismissed. God, we are so thankful, Lord, that what billions of people are searching for, you have plainly revealed in your word. And so, Lord, I pray that we would not set our minds on you once a week or twice a week or even in just the mornings or the evenings, but that our minds would be fixed on you and we would experience the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, that guards our hearts and minds. Why? In Christ Jesus, because we've been blood-bought by the Son of God. And so, Lord, I pray that even this peace would function as the supreme advertisement for the hope that we have in Christ, a hope that one day will be in glory and a hope that even the difficult elements of our life, the pain and the suffering, you are weaving together for your glory and our good. And we acknowledge God today that every leaf that falls to the ground, you are working all together for our good. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in your name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. You are dismissed. Have a great Sunday.